From the Duck South Studios in Oxford, Mississippi. We're mass communicating. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for them. This is the End of the Line Podcast, powered by DuckSouth.com. I give it a, uh, a 10. A 10. Sweep the leg. You have a problem with that. And now, here's your host, Rocky LaFleur. I bet you slice into the woods a hundred bucks. Gambling is illegal at Bushwood, sir, and I never slice. Also starring Josh Webb, Jake LaTondras, Rob Kroon, David Ellis, and Ramsey Russell. Showtime. All right, here we go. Hold your ears, folks. It's showtime. Showtime, everybody! Showtime! Welcome to the End of the Line podcast. I'm Rocky LaFleur in the Duck House Studios in Oxford, Mississippi. Join me on the other end of the line today, Ramsey Russell, our Macaulay guys. It's been a while. Yes, sir. It has been a while. Between uh, you two duck hunting all the time and me breeding goats, uh, it's it's been a while since we visited the the Innovator series. I don't know how many messages I've gotten. Hey, when when's our story coming back? Yep, same here. But Ramsey, we got the better end of that deal. Oh, yes, big we time. did. Me and Ira, me and Ira, been 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 uh, we hunted together up in Missouri, and I man, I got to get some some uh back end tail and some some history on a lot of the story we've done and it was just it was amazing it was it was unbelievable to go and see that kind of stuff you know and uh we had a good time talking and visiting too so paid it for you rocky hey i the when when you were up there i don't know if you'd gotten there yet or uh this was like i said before you arrived or not ira's making a pot of gumbo and i would have loved to set a recorder down beside Ira while he's making this pot of gumbo. No telling the conversations that are had over a pot of gumbo being made. Now, that, that's a fact. You know what? Uh, Ira and I recorded just a little old conversation one night. You know, Missouri Duck Camp, Locust Grove Duck Camp, which has got a tremendous amount of history, he and his family and, and friends. And, uh, wow, you know, you walk into that camp house, and, and it just, you walk right through the freaking front door and, and you just feel, you just feel that, that, that history and that, that connection, that vibe. And Ira does what he, what he does practically every time he walks in that door on the weekend, he started, started making gumbo in a big red enamel cast iron pot. And I thought to myself, man, I need to turn on the recorder and go right now. And I did. And I said, well, you know, heck, I started having a drink. He started having a drink. We started having another drink. And. Oh, I knew the time to eat gumbo and go do something else. I should have recorded it because that was Locust Grove Duck Camp. That that was that was it. And we we got a little old recording next night, but it wasn't it wasn't the same. It it was uh wow. You know what I'm saying? Just just you know, there's a the right there in the kitchen. I mean, you show me. I guess it's like most homes in America. Certainly, most duck camps, most camps I've been to, the heartbeat is right in the kitchen, and, and right in the middle of his his their kitchen. They've got this beautiful, uh, beautiful uh, island um, right there, and 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 that's where everybody gathers. And it's just, it was awesome, dude. It, it was, it was awesome. And I, I wish, I, and I learned an important lesson. When you walk in, the man starts cooking gumbo, turn on the recorder, because that's that's the conversation right there. Oh, we had a nice visit. I enjoyed it, man. I enjoyed our drive and our hunting and. And just uh, the fellowship it was a good time. Well, I knew when I saw that on Instagram, I was like, "Oh boy, this this is my kind of trip." Oh, and it was good gumbo. Oh, oh boy, it was good gumbo. I, it wasn't his first time to cook it. I tell you, that. <laughs> I tell you that he got it down to a science. Uh, both help, oh. both helpings that night were good, and the next day, it was a homemade roux, wasn't it, Ira? Yeah, man, I. Uh... Oh, I, a lot of times I'll buy rue on Amazon from the Cajun grocer, pre-made. You know, that's what all the tunies do. And uh, but man, I just haven't been on there to buy any of this year, so I've been making my own rue, which is fine. It's uh, 
it just stinks up the house, you know, and takes some time, man. You can't get away from it. It probably is a right. better. I, I think it's better. I really do. I I sure enjoyed it. That was some of the best gumbo I've had in a while. You know, it's, that's getting crazy about how gumbo, it, it's all kind of the same, but it's, but everybody's got their own. I mean, it, it, everybody's a little different. Yeah. You know, I was telling this. I was, I was telling. This, I was telling somebody yesterday about a. I've got a. <clears throat> the guys whose bed and breakfast we stay in on South Island, New Zealand. You may you stayed at Stude Home Inn, Ira and uh, oh, yeah, Sam, Man, that Sam guy Murray, is a great cook. Oh, oh, incredible! Well, he tours. He he does a Highway sixty one yeah. tour. He brings New Zealanders over here and they tour. They rent Mustangs yeah. and tour just to go see the South. And I was in there, and he heard my accent. He said to me one night, he said, you know, Mr. Russell, I, I really like gumbo, and I, and I make gumbo, and I'd love to get a Southerner's take on it. I said, well, man, I'm all in. Man, by all means, go for it, you know. And, boy, he went all out. He went all out, and it was absolutely delicious. And he says, well, what would you think of my gumbo? I said, well, it was very, very good. He said, but what would you think of it? I said, well, Sam, it ain't gumbo. <laughs> I'm sorry, right. but it ain't gumbo. It's very, very, very good. I mean, it was unbelievable. I'd like the recipe, but it wasn't gumbo. And uh, right, it's like tomato base, but it was tasty. It's something, yeah. It, it was a, it was a nice stew, a nice something, but it wasn't gumbo. And uh, but it was very, very good. Uh, working on a good southern root gumbo. We just need to get him over to ours one night and show him how to make it. And uh, Man, he'll be all in on it. Did you guys eat those minnow? Did you guys eat those minnow pancakes when you were down there? With all the yeah. little minnows in them? Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Oh. I, I'll try anything once. Man, the craziest thing, speaking of minnows, I was, last time I was in Russia, they took, they, I don't know what kind of fish they were. They eat them at all different sizes, but the ones they turned out, it was like a two-gallon serving bucket of French fries, except it looked like bait minnows. I mean, literally like you went to the bait shop and bought them bait minnows and breaded them and fried them. And I hate to say it, but that that was one of the best things I've ever eaten in Russia. <laughs> it, it was delicious. Oh, dang. Mm. Well, Ira, let me ask you this before we get back into the story. You've been open now three weeks, three three and a half, a little over about three and a half weeks, right? It's, dunk season. Uh, has. Oh, you mean dusty? Uh. Man, when did we open? I think November 3rd or something like that. Yeah, we're going on three weeks, two and a half weeks, I guess. What? Where would you put it? Uh, Where where would you... How would you rate it? One to ten, how would you rate it? Uh, For for Habitat Flash, it's been a ten. Um, For Locust Grove, it's probably been a... Seven and a half, something like that. Yeah, maybe eight. Um, we we've had we've had a little bit better hunting for the number of ducks that are here at times in the past. Um, but but habitat flats, their numbers are they're off to a huge start. Unbelievable. Yeah, and I say that man. I mean, like I looked at our books, and there's just a little bit of room for for some. Better hunt, but dude, it's been it's been really, really good, really good. Yeah. Well, that cold that cold front yep. that came through while Ramsey was up there with you, that that had, that had to be a game changer getting the cold front that early. Too early that for that, week. you know. It was four degrees the one morning. Yeah. They were cold. Um, but you know, I mean. Historically, typically, and we probably talked about this before, but but generally we're going to start getting our first really decent, as far as you might be able to kill four milers and two others, um, right around, you know, on your veteran's day front. So generally, your first good push of milers is showing up around November 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th, somewhere right in there. The last three Mm -hmm. years, man, they've been here early, early, you know. Um, even, Even before the season started, you know, we had real good numbers of ducks and very good numbers of mallards in pockets. So, I don't know. I swear they can read the regulations. You know, they they know that we changed the framework there three years ago, and they've been 
earlier than, than they have been historically for, man, as long as I can remember before that, unless, you know, there were a couple odd years through there, but uh, definitely a different deal. Well, what about Not the green? The green, uh, has the green, green had, opened up yet? Yep, they had one week of hunting. They had, had really good hunting. They did great. I think there was one day with no win where they didn't do very good, but other than that, they did real good. Uh, had excellent hunting, and then they had a five-day split. So they just opened back up today, and I know they were expecting big things today. There were tons of ducks and, uh, you know, nice little breeze today, so I'm sure they stacked them up pretty quick this morning. Well, that you know, that that's kind of where we ended the story uh, three weeks ago, October the 25th. I was looking back on the dates, but it's kind of where we left it. You, you, you'd bought Locust Grove, and how did, and you kind of told in there that you and, you and Tony had started hunting together. Um, how did all of that come about? How was that put together? You mean the Habitat Flats? Uh, Correct. I think that's about partnership yeah. and all that. No, no, I'm not not the business side of it, but just the history, the story of how that all came together. Um, just all the what made you decide? What made story. you decide to do a business? A question I've got: What made y'all decide to make your passion an outfitting business? Yeah, you're not and, kidding. And not that only not only question. make it an outfitting, not only make it an outfitting business, but and you and I talk about this, Ira, to to absolutely make it a premium, not not just a Joe Shit the Ragman guide service, but but set the the standard. I mean that that took vision. I mean, how did how did that process evolve? How did you and Tony just sitting out there duck hunting one day, pulling them Mo Marsh boats, going out there in that bottom? He showed me below the Grand, chasing them ducks. How did it go from there to you know what? We need to make the gold standard of commercial duck hunts. How how did that even come about? You guys ready to get into it? Yes. Yeah. We bought Lux Grove in 2005. I'd been hunting that area for a long time. I graduated from vet school in 1995, and, uh, you know, I hunted uh, kind of all through that whole area, not just right there where Lux Grove and, and the and Habitat Flats are, but down by where the Grand is as well. You know, my first job was in Higginsville, Missouri, so I hunted Grand Pass a lot. I hunted all those bottoms through there a lot. Um and so at that time, uh, we, you know, I guess 2006 is when we built our house down there or bought our house down there. And, uh, Tony was done with college and he, uh, he was leasing a spot there. And of course he had several other places around there. He had a little uh, place that he owned a share in. And, and, uh, I think, you know, we all had a public ground a decent amount back then as well. And, uh, so we just, you know, it was, it was back in the days when, uh, well, forums were big. And so, you know, the Avery forum was something that, that was on people's radar screens and duckhunter.net and waterfowler.com. And I, I mean, I'm sure there were several others, but those are just some that I recall. And, uh, but the Avery forum was at the time something that, you know, a lot of people paid attention to. So, uh, I was familiar with who Tony was through the forum world, and he was familiar with, I, with who I was through there. And uh, But we had never met before. Yeah, so we're there in Cooney's, and, and one of us recognized the other one and said, hey, aren't you Ira or Tony? And the other guy said, yeah. And so we got to talk, and we said, well, heck, let's go, let's go hunt together sometime. And uh, so I was like, yeah, no problem. So I, I can't remember if it was the next day or a couple of days later. Uh, we went hunting, had a great hunt, man. Big front came in. I uh, shot black duck, we killed our mallards. Uh, his old dog, Ruff, uh, went with us, and, and I think my old dog, May, went. And, uh, man, it was awesome. And then another one of you guys' crew, Bill Cooksey, he came down. Oh, I, I don't remember if it was that afternoon or the next day, but, uh, Bill came down and hunted with us a few days. And we had some real good, real good shooting and, and had a good time, and, and, uh, and so that was kind of how Tony and I met for the first time. 
and then you know we hunted together uh oh consistently after that you know and so my crew got to know his crew and, and everybody just became friends and we all started hunting together and uh, man we had we had just a, a whole pile of pe- places that we could go and um you know uh shoot the the we just had some great experiences you know we had lots of places we could go lots of different diverse types of, of habitat from you know field hunting which very few people were doing back then to uh, hunting the river to hunting our different wetland tracks and uh and i wouldn't uh i mean i, I did a lot of a lot of goose hunting back then and we all we all did and we all just kind of combined forces and uh you know we had a lot of good times and um so that's kind of how the whole relationship between uh me and Tony and my brother started and then, you know, Dan, our partner Dan Doherty, um he's a farmer up there and uh Dan, you know, he, he helped us out on the farm inside some and and uh he had some, you know, nice piece of property right there. Dan's not a huge duck hunter, he's more of a deer hunter, but uh, you know, great dude and, and uh so the four of us just kinda meshed and had a good time and uh so that was kind of the groundwork that was laid there and um and then i can't remember did we get into any of the the stories about like how aaron and i started doing veterinary hunts ah a little bit yes yes a little bit okay so yeah i mean that's kind of you know that was kind of the next progression there was that you know i mean shoot no one said duck hunting on that scale was cheap or effortless. You know, I mean, it takes a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of manpower, a lot of money. Um, you know, when you're doing wetland management, it does. And, you know, you're pumping lots of water and, and providing food, you know, getting water off at the right time, getting it on at the right time. And then it floods and you got to go undo everything mother nature did and just deal with the hand that you're played every year you know there's no there's no prescription that that's uh fail safe you just roll with punches and hope you come out not too beat up at the end and uh so on locust grove and stop me if if i if we've already gotten into all the details on this i can't remember but we started hosting veterinary continuing education hunts there and the drug companies would would underwrite the cost for the most part, or at least a portion of it. And the veterinarians would would come. And then we had a, a race administrator who was a board certified, you know, uh, continuing education person. And uh, so you know, we'd hunt during the day and eat a good meal at night, and maybe drink a drink or two, and then talk about whatever the the program was there, and you know, get some continuing education. And and we charged a premium for that. And that was at our duck camp. So we we built on a buck, uh, bunk room where you stayed, Ramsey. It used to be a little different, um, yep. a little bit nicer now. But uh, you know, and and our uh, our guests would stay at our house. Uh, my dad would cook, and uh, Tony would help us guide the duck hunters, and and uh, you know, we we'd helped offset some of our costs that way. Then he and Tyson Keller were running TNT Snows, and so we'd help them guide those guys, you know. So we kind of worked uh, together on on those things, on the duck side and then on the goose side. And uh, so that was kind of where some groundwork was getting laid. And we'd all we'd all kind of guided on and off before that, not really professionally, but just, you know, for ourselves to help offset a little bit of the cost here and there. Right. And... Uh, so then, probably, uh, Ramsey, we drove past there. Remember where all the corn was? Yeah. Big, huge block oh, yeah. of corn. So uh-huh. that was owned by a landowner, and, and uh, Aaron and Tony were like, man, we, we really want to buy this piece of ground. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I bet, I bet you do. And they're <laughs> like, no, we we really want to buy it. I'm like, was well, it even for sale? And they're like, well, no, it's not for sale. And I'm like, well, do you have any money? And they're like, well, no, we don't have any money. I'm like, well, okay, well, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things in life I want, but uh, it just sounds like another pipe dream to me. And they're like, yeah, yeah, well. And so 
they they write up a business plan on on how they think that this piece of ground you know can be bought and here's how it could be paid for and they they give it to me and say hey look at this business plan and I'm like hey man I look I I got a lot going on and you know putting a bunch of money into a, a hunting property and a and a guide business is probably not a very good idea. They're like, okay, well, whatever, you know, just read was it. it. Was, it like, was it initially just kind of a way like, hey, let's let's buy some land, some good duck hunting land, and offset our our purchase price with running a few hunts to offset that cost? Is that kind of how it started? Well, yeah, but I mean, you're talking big dollars, you know. I mean, it was, those guys had some vision that was outside of the box, and, uh, you know, it took me reading that thing a couple of times before I was like, man, you know what? This this could work. Uh, okay. It could work. I'm like, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that we're going to break even, but I don't think that, I don't think I'll have to come up with all the money out of pocket. And I say I, we, you know. And so we sat down and we had a conversation about it. And, and then it was like, okay, well, uh, what's the first step? And it's like, I don't know, I guess we talked to a banker. And I I did know enough to know that a banker wasn't going to give us a 0% down loan. And I'm like, man, we're going to have to have, you know, some money to put down, 20, 30%, I'd guess. And I'm like, I don't know about you guys, but I don't have I don't have anything. And they're like, no, we don't have anything either. I'm like, well, sounds like we're kind of dead in the water. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're dead in the water. And then I'm like, well, what do you think the chances are that well, Jim might own a finance that to us. They're like, I don't know. And so we kind of went through that and threw that up against the board. And, and uh, I'm I'm sure old Jim was, was laughing hysterically when we pitched this deal to him because, you know, he's probably listening to this thing thinking these guys are crazy. And I'm going to make, you know, I'm going to make some pretty decent money before I take my farm back. And, and uh, too bad for them, you know. So we we're going to spend some improvement money and some cash and, I won't get into all the details, but but I will say this: uh, we pulled the trigger on it, and we went from standing still to sprinting as hard as we could, and uh, and we never looked back. And I will say for sure that if there's anything that defines what the American dream is, I don't know how much closer you could get to it than that business because. Um, you know, for, for all that it's become, and of course there's been lots of hard work and sweat equity and conversations and vision and risk and all kinds of different things. But for, you know, four people to just sit down and make a plan and see the future with, with not a whole lot. I mean, we, and, and we had some stuff like we had some personal aspects, assets, but we didn't have any money. and um, have it become what it has become over time i mean it's just a it still inspires me to think about it for sure and uh it should be an inspiration to uh you know to everybody that's that's out there that that uh you know has passion and and wants to make a better life for themselves and 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 to share you know their passion with other people as well having it's having really to make cool. it happen was a, was a lot of incentive wasn't it I oh mean, yeah, you, you, y'all, y'all pulled the trigger, and y'all had to make it happen. There wasn't no sitting back and hoping. It, it was by God, we're in the middle of the lake. We better start swimming. Yeah, I mean, you know, we, like I said, we had no money, so we had, you know, we had different people that were that were owner finance and stuff for us. And you know, there's some things you can't borrow money for, no matter if you got fifty percent to put down. And so, you know, one of our lenders was my father-in-law, who I was fairly intimidated by anyways and uh you know we were in the in the kitty to him in the beginning for a pretty good amount there and i the last thing i was going to do was be caught sitting on the couch or eating a daggum hot dog while there was stuff to be done when when i knew that he was my landlord you know right so wow and Randy, what was your you, first you know you, you what, saw what the whole your, thing oh, now and you know i mean it's just uh oh, I it, saw it's it. just it's pretty cool. What, what, uh, what was your first step? You you bought the land, you pulled the trigger. When you say we got busy, what what time of year did you close the deal? What did y'all get busy doing, and how did how did this thing start falling together? 
Well, we, we closed uh, first of the year. So, um, you know, first thing we had to do was make some money. And so we did that, uh, you know, so Habitat Flats assumed uh, the snow goose business. So that, you know, that's where our first income started coming from. So we, there you we go. all worked at that. And, uh, you know, we didn't have much help. So we had a few friends that were helping us for, you know, a couple bucks. And, uh, man, we did it all. We, I mean, that was, you know, we did... Oh man, what was our first? F5 was our first snow goose video. So, you know, we were guiding all day. Um, we'd have one guy scouting and then we'd all be up all night uh, resetting spreads. And we were chasing lots of feeds back then. So, you know, shoot, you just didn't sleep for a month. You know, you, we were up all night long and, and we were all staying in this little bitty house. We called it the Mouse Mahal over there on Highway 11 and the clients were staying at our house. Uh, my dad was the cook, and we'd just eat whatever leftovers, you know, they might have left for us. We, we, one of us would go over there once a day, and it might be dad would just take anything that was left. I remember one time we had prime rib gumbo because he'd cook prime rib and some gumbo, and whatever's left, he'd just throw it all in a big pot, and that was what we ate, whatever it happened to be. And uh, we all slept on the floor, you know, man, I'm telling you, it's pretty rough living. It really was. Uh, I, I remember was. seeing one of your early DVDs or something. I, I just remember yeah. seeing some video footage and y'all were walking dead. Y'all were literally sitting in a mud room asleep in your waiters tired. Oh yeah, man. It was, it, I mean, it, going we were running on fumes. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, but anyway, it was, it was cool times, you know, man, golly, the snow was something. You know, things were good back then. You know, there wasn't near the pressure there is today. And, and there were some good year classes. You know, there were plenty of Jews to work with. And, uh, man, we had some really incredible hunts, you know. And it gave us a good, a good solid financial foundation to kind of start taking some pretty good wax on stuff. And, uh, and so then it was like, hey, I was like, we're, we're building a lodge because, uh, man, this, uh, you know, me sleeping on the floor over there with everybody all packed together and, you know, everybody at our house and, and all that, that, that just, that didn't going to work, um, for the long term at all. And, uh, so, you know, we started making plans to build a lodge. And, uh, so, you know, I mean, geez, you can build anything, right? We knew we wanted to build a lodge, but, you know, you first start thinking about it and you're like, okay, so you're punching the numbers on stuff and you're like, well, what if we, built a lodge to sleep eight people it's like okay well uh we know we hunt more than eight people eight people and not get us very far all right well what about 12 people so anyway the first lodge uh, we built you know we built it for 24 people and uh it's kind of a oh man it's a you know kind of a main rectangle with two wings coming off each end it's got 12 uh, double occupancy bedrooms and the central area you know with the a bar and a, a living room area and a mud room and a, a kitchen and a loft upstairs and uh, shoot I think we operated that max one year probably a half a year and we were like man we don't we don't have enough room so we built that other building and uh, we can house eight more people there downstairs and then you know we had room upstairs for our guides and all that stuff and keep all our all our equipment or a bunch of it over there and all that stuff. So, I mean, obviously we were growing year one. We realized that 24 beds wasn't enough and, and, uh, expanded there. So, uh, you know, it, it just blossomed really fast and, and, uh, and we were still all guiding every day. So, you know, me, Aaron, Tony, Dan was doing all the upland stuff, all the deer stuff. So, you know, all the partners were at that point actively involved and uh and really you know come to the table uh for all that stuff and uh you know the guys just they just the, the clients came oh man we just had a great time you know we treated them like like just part of our crew you know and and i think that we built a great rapport with those people you know when they came uh we were we considered them to be our friends and and, uh, you know, we have 
great hunting, but, you know, anywhere you go, shoot, it's just like last week. I had two mornings that I went, and, I mean, there wasn't a breath of daggum wind. There were ducks quacking all around me. But, uh, you know, we're not we're not in the business of going around and sneaking around and trying to shoot them off the water Indian style. So, you know, some days just aren't, aren't meant to be. But we always had a good time and tried to make up for it uh, by control. You know, our theory from the beginning was that, hey, we're going to do everything we can. Everything that we can control, we're going to control. And and we're not going to let money and trying to pinch pennies be what drives this business. We're going we're gonna to spend whatever we have to spend to try to make sure whether it's food, duck food, water, location of the properties, Whatever the case may be, we're going to do everything that's in our control before the season opens to make sure that we can look someone in the face and shake their hand and know that we did everything that we could have done to to make a duck come to see us and stay there as long as it could. And then come back if it got super cold. You know, they wanted to come back there. And uh, so we took care of that stuff. And then at the lodge, you know, I, I'd, I'd been fortunate to have traveled around quite a bit uh, around the world. When I say the world, my world was, uh, you know, I'd been to Argentina, I'd been to Mexico several times, been to Canada quite a few times and, and several other places. But I had I'd seen that, you know, some places were run professionally and they had good food and uh, they were organized, they had good equipment. Um, and then other places you'd go, it'd be like, Hey, meet me at Dunkin' Donuts at five o'clock. And the guy might be there at five forty, or, you know, the equipment yeah. was poor or whatever. So I, I just, I knew that it was going to be a priority for us to build a nice lodge that we could be proud of. Um, and to make sure again, that in that lodge, everything that we could control, we were going to spend the money and make the effort and be organized enough to have as many things under control as we possibly could. So we're going to have good food. This was what we were going to do as far as booze went. Um, This was the way that we were going to run our staffing. Um, Here was the level of of food and service that we expected. And so we kind of said, hey, man, that's, that's priority, that all these things that we can control, we want to make sure that they're as good as they can be. And here's, here's the level that we expect that to be at. Um, and, you know, we set our you pricing. You set the standard. Y'all set the standard high from the get-go. Y'all, y'all, y'all and I, I was going to ask you that, Ira, you know, what was your inspiration? Because, because uh, you and I, for example, are, quote, in the industry, unquote, you know, we're, we do these hunts and stuff for a living, whereas regular folks, they go to a restaurant and they judge it based on the food and the presentation and the service. Guys like me and you, we kind of get the industry perspective from back in the kitchen, back in the back alley. But, you know, we notice things. And, you know, I have used talking to a lot of just other outfitters around the U.S., uh, if not around the world, I have used Habitat Flats so many times as an example. You know, you talk to an average outfitter anymore, uh, or I say a lot of outfitters I've talked to in the past, I say, well, what's your competitive advantage? What are you going to do? What do you do? Well, we deliver more for less. I said, no, 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 that's Walmart's competitive advantage. Yeah. That ain't that ain't duck hunting. You know, and I've always said, look, set the standard. Set the standard and deliver it. Who is your client? Who what segment of duck hunters are you looking for? How are you going to service them? What are you going to deliver? How are you going to deliver it? And and I have used Habitat Flats a million times as a case study. Go yeah. go pay to go hunt Habitat Flats. Go see what those guys are doing, and then and then set your bar accordingly. You know what I'm saying? I mean because because y'all vision, Ira. You know, you just walk through a long timeline of. Uh, we moved people into our lodge, and we were sleeping on the floor, and we were running on fumes. And we bought this land, and we did this. To we built twenty-four person lodge, and then a year later we scaled out. Man, we're not talking ten years. That, no. that, that happened over what a two or three year period. Oh man, that's, ex- yeah, that's I mean, explosive. That that is that is explosive. Hey man, know, that's that, Trump that is, testicles. That I mean, you got to have man. titanium. Yeah, that's titanium balls. I mean, you know, you got to you, you got to. 
there were some risks there, that's for sure. But oh, there were there was risk, but you delivered. You had a vision, and and you you hit that vision, and you delivered. And I, I mean, we're talking a two or three year period of time. There, there's a lot of businesses, myself included. It, it took a whole lot longer than that. And I felt like I put the risk in, but man, I'm telling you, I'm, I'm saying it very complimentary. Sure. Um, and and I just it, it was you know having seen it firsthand and gone through. Man, when you're telling the story now, I've seen these fields, I've seen the property, I know the people, and uh, wow, it's just it's just highly commendable. What? So you went on. You went to Canada. You went to Mexico, and you borrowed from Ronald Mill to 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 an Argentina to some of the high end stuff. And you just said, "Here's what we want. Here here's yeah. the client we're after because this is what we want." Well, the other thing to remember is what was going on in 2008. Oh Major boy, recession, right? Yeah, the, the, the average guy wasn't going on these trips. That's right. So, I mean, if you're going to open a, wow. a new business in a recession, uh, what's the best thing you can do? Tar- target the guys that are in, 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 in flight, uh, recession-proof. Yeah, I mean, you know the deal. You see it in your business. That's exactly right. Yeah. So That's exactly that right. was the only thing that made sense, you know, was to go high. We darn sure weren't going to go low. I mean, we didn't have a low-end product. You know what? You know one one thing I remember. You know we got up that morning. It was cold. It was frozen. We did a we did a great tour. Rocky, uh, I and I got up, drank coffee, and he and I and Bear jumped in the truck, and we got the full tour of uh, habitat flats of the of the landscape of the river bottoms of the flood effect of the new Grand Lodge. I mean, it was just golly, it was it was it was incredible. Um, and heard bits and pieces of this story to put together. Um, but, but our, it, it's, it's just, uh, it, it really is an amazing trajectory from somebody that does what I do for a living to have seen, uh, the whole process and heard his story is, is truly amazing what, what y'all accomplished. It really, it truly is. Yeah, man, it, it really is. It's pretty cool. And, um, yeah, it's something to be proud would you of. Do, would you do sure. it again? Do, do you think, do you think right now, if you had to do that again, I mean, you, you made it look easy, but we know it ain't. Uh man, two thousand eight was a scary, scary time of, of of I don't care what kind of business you were in back in two thousand eight, man, folks were buckled down and, and uh upside down in their mortgages uh, nationwide and had lost their savings on paper. That was a that was a very scary time to be in anything, let alone right. the hunting business. Luxury, you know, just totally uh a luxury vacation type thing. I would you do it again, do you think? Could you well, do yeah, it again? I mean Yes, uh, but like I said, I think I've said this on here before, you know, shoot, take your risks while you're young, you know what I mean? We didn't yeah. Have, I mean, we we didn't have a whole lot to lose. We didn't have a whole lot. Um, so, you know, I mean, now obviously we're doing a major expansion, uh, and it's been, it's been painful. Um, you know, we have more to lose now, but, uh. Yeah, I mean it's been it's been great. Uh, it's it gets it's tougher been, uh, when you're, you get older and you start getting kids, and it does get it does get harder to take risk when you're older. Uh, I would, you know, I have felt like in my own trajectory that I caught some breaks. It may have been as as subtle as as meeting the shaking the right hand that that opened a little door. Or, or said something that navigated me somewhere. It, it wasn't like a Powerball break, like, oh, I just won the Powerball lottery. Were there any lucky breaks y'all felt like y'all caught that helped y'all along the way? Well, probably the biggest ones, and, and I don't know how much of it's luck, how much of it was just uh, being a good bullshitter, and how much of it was just uh, that it made sense for everybody, but, you know, Financially, none of it would have been possible if it hadn't been for people that were willing to uh, willing to take a risk on on us being successful and and you know either doing private equity loans or owner financing deals or whatever. So you know if it hadn't been for a few key people that believed in us and were willing to uh, 
you know, help us, um, it wouldn't have been possible because we didn't have any money. And so, you know, like I said, my father-in-law and a couple of landowners, you know, those guys being willing to help us out financially was what made the whole thing uh, even possible because if it hadn't been for them, it wouldn't have happened because we just didn't have any money. And, you know, the bank's a bank, bank, they're hedging their bets and looking at their risk and they aren't going to lay all that on the line for 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 young guys that that think they're gonna start the world's greatest duck hunting place, you know. Well, I can say the same thing. I can I can I can actually think back to a half dozen to a dozen of my earlier clients that believed in me enough to get the ball rolling. And then I guess I mean, that, I, that probably was one of the ultimate breaks. Yeah, you know, I'm no I'm no Obama fan at all. Uh but he said something that pissed a lot of people off, including me. He said, you built that business? You didn't do that by yourself. And we said that, I was like, God, what a what an arrogant son of a bitch. And then I'm sitting there thinking, I'm going, you know what? In the case of Habitat Flats, he's kind of right, because it was due to the, the, the help of, of some people uh, that made that whole thing possible. Um, but beyond that one example, I still think he's full of shit. Yeah, <laughs> sorry to get too political there, but <laughs> no, that is not what he meant, Ira. You just you just took you just took it out of context and made it something good. That is yeah. not what that man meant. But yeah, um, no that's doubt. a that's a good spin on it. It's a very good spin on it. Yeah, I don't think you're gonna make too many people mad saying that. Not in our community, maybe a couple, but oh well. Oh. <laughs> um, how long did it take to get that engine, that snowball rolling down the hill, though, Ira? Oh man, it, it, you know. Where you breathe, Daisy? Uh, well, shoot, you know, you just breathe different. I don't know that we were breathing easy. Um, you know, the the money side of it, you know, in a year we were doing pretty good. Um, at least not bleeding too much, but uh, but you know, there were there were. You know, there's just a lot going on in any business, right? And when it's when it's growing like that, you know, there there's a whole lot of moving parts and all that. I mean, it was we were we like I said we hit the ground running, and uh, man, we were all running pretty hard with it uh, back in those days. It was all good, but uh, the you know we all had a shared vision and a common vision, um, and and that helped uh, that you know when it came to when it came to the business vision and, and the goals and how we were going to run it. Uh, everybody was pretty well on the same page there um, as far as management and how we wanted to spend whatever money and, and how, you know, what our plans were. Uh, we were all, I mean, it, for the most part, we, we had, it was a pretty seamless and straight straightforward path. So that was helpful. Tony is is you guys are kind of in the background. Um, Tony is kind of the face of it all. Tell us something about Tony that that nobody outside of that circle would know. Well, I mean, I don't know what everybody knows, but one thing that I would think most people would know, but it's probably, I mean, it's definitely one of the keys to the success of Habitat Flats is that there isn't anybody that's going to outwork Tony. I can tell you that. I mean, he is a hard-working person. Uh, like that is not, that's not just a front that you see on social media. I mean, that sucker, he gets up and gets after it every day. Uh, so that that is a real deal. And then he's also very smart. I mean, he's really good at, you know, paying attention to what's going on, um, having his finger on the pulse of the stuff, um, you know, being a visionary. Um, and so, you know, there's most of the things that we've done have worked. There's been a couple that, you know, didn't really work out uh, the way that we would have wanted them to for whatever reason. But uh, it was never due to um, a lack of uh, forward thinking or a lack of effort, that's for sure. Um, and, and those are probably, I mean, those are definitely, and he definitely deserves a, a huge amount of the credit for the success of the business because, I mean, he's our manager, so he's the guy 
that's uh, putting tons of paper and doing the day-to-day management and deciding, you know, who goes where and and, uh, and all that. So I'll give you a quick example. Like, the dude's just relentless. I mean, so let's say that he gets a dry week in April and, he, and he's planting corn. I'm like, man, you're crazy. It's too early. It's going to flood. If it was me, I wouldn't waste my time planting until June. He's like, well, I'm planting. If it floods, I'll plant it again. So there have been years where he's had to plant corn like five times and then still not gotten the crop. But you don't hear him complaining about it, you know. And uh, and uh, and then there's, you know, I remember one year in particular, he planted it in April. I was like, well, that doesn't make any sense. Well, it was a huge drought year. So, you know, there were some corn that got planted like in June. It didn't make a nickel of a bushel, you know. I mean, there was it just it just dried up and didn't do crap and stuff that – Plain in April, of course, it never flooded. But who would have ever guess that? And uh, man, that corn was was unreal, you know. And uh, so, man, he just he just keeps on grinding and pounding after it. And uh, you know, when when you and we're all kind of wired that way. But when you put in the effort over and over again, and you're just bound and determined that you're gonna make something work, guess what? It usually ends up working out. You know what I mean? You know, one thing I had forgotten, um, and, it, and it's got to do with uh, 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 then and now, which was uh, those chat rooms you were talking about, Avery and Waterfowler and Refuge and Duck South and all that good stuff versus social media today. Social media today is just an endless, constant stream, a river, of, of, of a flooded Missouri River of imagery coming coming through your profile or coming through your screen but back in the day it wasn't quite like it because it was just chat rooms it was thread to thread somebody took pictures somebody didn't somebody knew how to post them most people didn't but you know what i remember uh i remembered when uh our when we were just walking through habitat flash looking around i started looking on the walls and seeing a lot of those photographs was real early on tony had a digital camera and by god knew how to use it yeah, and yeah, and you sure. know he took he took he 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 took a ton of really really good photos that probably uh, I convinced me, but probably you know helped picture talking a thousand words sell the message of what y'all were doing in terms of snow geese and Canada geese yeah. and ducks and and habitat. I mean, I, I had really forgotten all about Tony Vandemore, comma photographer, because he really yeah, he was, was great back in the day, man. Sure. He was great. Yeah. I wonder if he still does a lot of y'all. Does he still take a lot of pictures like that? I know uh, I see his video clips yeah. on uh, on social media now. Yeah, no, I don't think so. I mean, we've got a we've got a photographer that does most yeah. of that stuff now. So I don't I don't think he uses the camera too much other than his phone and whatnot. But um, you know, yeah. one of the biggest misconceptions about Habitat Flats that I think that you guys catch a lot of flack for, Ira. Couple of seconds. On this, Ramsey and I were having this conversation on Monday. Y'all catch a lot of flack for the little bit of corn that you guys plant, but I think it's so it's such a huge misconception about Habitat Flats because of the y'all do a lot more, way, way more outside of of corn way more the moist soil i I think the moist soil thing man y'all if people randy's talking about copying the guide service i think the the thing that needs to be copied throughout the southeast is the moist soil management that you guys do at habitat flats because it's just like ramsey was talking about the other day we were having this conversation people go out here and throw all these crops up that's all good and well but you know the snow geese are just going to march through it always happens always it always does rice beans whatever it may be but the moist soil they're not going to get they don't mess with it. it but and it's so much better the invertebrates the proteins there for a duck that that's traveled that far and lost so much muscle on that well, long flight. I mean, hey, it, it corn's a tool. That's all that it is. I mean, it, it's definitely, it, it'd be like, 
it'd be like having a conversation that, that goes like this. Hey, um, Ramsey, every day for the next 60 days, we're going to eat cheesecake. You can have cheesecake for lunch, you can have cheesecake for breakfast, and you can have cheesecake for dinner. Yeah. Okay? Well, that might sound good on day one. But it's going to sound like <laughs> crap about day five. You're going to be like, God, man, that's don't right. show me any more cheesecake. <laughs> that's right. That's and right. So, you know, right. Or you can... Or you can go to the, you know, I don't know, one of those big buffets that has anything you can imagine. You know, you got salad, you got ice cream, you got steak, you got pizza, you got chicken wings, you got whatever, you you know, all kinds of stuff. Well, you could eat there every day for 60 days and not think a thing about it, right? And that's the way it is with yep. the duck. I mean, corn helps to get us through something like we had uh, on the backside when you're at my place, Ramsey. So when it's four degrees, birds, when those birds need that big pulse of carbohydrate to get through that ice, yep. That but and it not, gives them thermal cover them. where they can get in there. It's not going to hold them. You know, it's going to hold cover. them temporarily. It's going to provide a little bit. It's going to provide thermal cover. It's going to provide rich carbohydrate. But Rocky, here's one thing. You know, it's easy to live outside. You know, it's easy to judge something by what you heard or what you think, not having been down there. And I had never been to this river bottom or this, this part of the world until I went up there and met with Ira. And I, I left Ira's and went and visited a mutual friend of ours up near Mound City. And, man, between the two, over a five- or six-day period, I got the grand tour of uh, state and federal refuges and private properties and, and just the whole overview of that bottom. And it, it was just, I love, love, love getting to see that kind of stuff. And, you know, number one, that, that part of the world lends itself to, uh, parts of it lend itself to row crop agriculture like corn. It, it just does. And, and, but, but, you know, moist soil management, managing grasses, managing natural vegetation in that part of the Mississippi Flyway is entirely different than in most parts of Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, certainly Mississippi. You know, whereas we've got a six-foot riser in a real ridge and swell topography holding uh, 40 acres of water at best, they've got a two-foot riser holding 130, 200, 300 acres. You know, all the moist soil management uh, that Lee Fredrickson the waterfowl colleges developed that we all use and borrow from come from right there in that part of the world. And there are millions upon millions of acres, like, like a lot of the tour we did this year, just looking at uh, flood-affected areas from last year. I mean, they had, I don't know how many levee breaches they had up and down the Missouri River, but it was a bunch. And uh, oh, and, and, and the, resulting, the resulting natural flat, pancake flat, tabletop flat habitat uh, with that pulse of water that they're able to imitate with a two-foot riser instead of a six-foot riser really captures that benefit. You know, and, and it's, it's not that people in that part of the world are planting corn. It's that that part of the world is very, very ducky. That's just it in a nutshell. Man, you've got, you've got all these river systems converging along the Missouri, the Grand, uh, several other I can't remember. It, it's it's a hell of it's a hell of a flyway, and, and and it's just it's just textbook perfect God given habitat. I mean I mean it just you 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 it just is, you know. And uh, I looked at I looked at a, a, one of our mutual friends' properties, and he didn't get to plant his corn this year. He he didn't get to plant his corn because the flood. And man, we went out and smack smacked those ducks. I mean it was it was good. And so, personally, so, I don't know. Uh, I, I I told him, I said, why would you plant corn? Man, this is, I look at this habitat compared to something like Willowbrake. Just his natural grass. He did a little mowing, did a little whatever. I'm like, this is this would be my model. And so much of what I saw uh, on habitat flats and surrounding property, state, federal, uh, the private, were, were very, very similar. It, it doesn't have a – it doesn't have – one single thing to do with corn. It, it, it has entirely to do with their landscape. That, that, you it, know, it's, when, just, it's just where they're located. When, when we're talking about moist soil, um, small seed stuff, you know, what happens here 
is that we'll get a front like we had when you were here. Remember, it was 70 degrees. Heck, we're in short sleeves one afternoon. I know. And the next morning, it was cold as could be. And then the next day, it was four degrees for a low. But when it's four degrees, those ducks, you know, they have to have thermal cover or moving water because the moist soil is going to lock up. I mean, when it's four degrees, they can't keep that open. Um, so they leave that, or they probably could if they had no other alternate. They, you know, they may try, but they either go to the river or they'll go and get in the corn, A, because it's got high carbs, and B, they can keep it open with all that insulation there. Um, and so, like Ramsey, we hunted our wetland, which is almost all WRP. It's full of ducks, right? Ten oh, thousands yeah. of ducks there. Yeah. Well, all that froze up, okay? So those ducks went to the river, and they went to the corn, and they were there. They were gone. There wasn't a duck on the place for, I don't know, four or wow. five days or so. Well, guess what happened? The day that things started to thaw, guess where they went? Right back. right back to the moist soil. And so that's the way it'll go all fall and all spring and, and all that is that, yeah, they'll use the corn, and they'll use the river when they need to, and they'll go dry field, and they'll do whatever they have to do to get by. Because they've been doing it for hundreds of thousands of years. They know that it's going to be really cold for a couple days, but they know it's going to warm up. And so they know all they have to do is just get through a couple days, so they're resourceful. They find whatever resource they can to get them through those couple days, and then they're going to go back to the next best resource, which many times has nothing to do with corn. They'll leave that corn and go right back to the moist soil, you know. And so... Mm -hmm. I think, you know, there's the misconception that these ducks are hooked on corn like a crack horse hooked on crack, but they're not. I mean, they're just, they're healthy and they make good choices. And depending on the time of the year and the temperature and what all's going on, they're going to go and eat whatever the heck they want. They're not going to just eat corn because it's there. They're going to eat invertebrates or small seeds or, you know, corn or whatever the case may be. And they're going to conserve energy. They're 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 not going to fly and migrate south just to do it. I mean, they're they're whole they're they're biologically engineered to expend as little energy as human as possible. Right. You know. So if if they can make a living uh, in Minnesota or in Saskatchewan, or if they got to go as far south as Missouri to make a living, that's what that's where they're going to stop. The other that's thing just, that's amazing. That's how they're programmed. And it's amazing to me how quick they start coming back, you know. So, like, I'm thinking back to last year. We'd probably gone, I don't know, at least two weeks. I hadn't seen another duck. I mean, maybe a couple green wings. But, I mean, all I'd seen were mallards and, and hawkers. And uh, we had some geese around and some trumpet or swans. But, I mean, I hadn't seen any other ducks for, for weeks. And, uh, I mean, it's like, I don't know, mid-December. And all of a sudden, there's pintails and widgeon and and all kinds of you know off ducks i hadn't seen for a while that obviously come back north from somewhere down south in mid-december and so uh you know uh, they come south but then it, it just always amazes me how they want to get back north you know there's a switch that flips and all of a sudden they want to start coming north again well when i when i hunted up there for a long time with pat at lang uh those ducks would just, they, the, the mass migration seemed to stay right on that 50-degree thermocline. If it dipped down, they were they were there. And when it sucked back up north, they, they, they stayed on that line and went right back up into Missouri, whether y'all were open or not. You know, so I've, I've seen that firsthand. Yeah. Well, Ira, look, the ever-expanding Momarsh brand is where we're headed to next week because man, as Habitat Flats is exploding in your left hand, Momarsh is exploding in your right hand as mm-hmm. a owner and co-owner of both. That's that's kind of where we'll head to next week. Um, cool. Because there's a a lot of new products that I want to hear about it. I want to hear how you came up with these in the garage in the basement doing surgery because I know that. And, and why you're in the field, because I know you're thinking about these things. How can I make a hunter's life easier? How can I make a hunt better? And so yeah, I want to hear I'm, about those next week. I mean, we talked about it before we got on the deal uh, today, but, you know, this morning I came in. I knew I had a busy day, so 
started doing my surgeries early. Uh, my sourcing guy, my old buddy, Andy, he came over at 11 o'clock with some product samples that we'd just gotten back. And we set all that up in the middle of our treatment area back there. My, all my employees were looking at me like, oh, my God, I thought you were done with all this stuff. We had crap scattered everywhere. It was great. <laughs> boy. Well, we'll jump back into that next week. Ira, thank you again. Ramsey, thank you for being here. We want to thank all of you that listened to this edition of the End of the Line podcast, powered by DuckSouth.com. <laughs>